Chapter Three of the Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Chapter Three. Five o'clock in the evening. The missing one. Neb's despair. Search towards the north. The islet. A dreadful night. A fog in the morning. Neb swims. Sight of land. Fording the channel. The engineer, the matches of the net having given way, had been carried off by a wave. His dog also had disappeared. The faithful animal had voluntarily leapt out to help his master. Forward, cried the reporter, and all four, Spilett, Herbert, Bancroft, and Neb, forgetting their fatigue, began their search. Poor Neb shed bitter tears, giving way to despair at the thoughts of having lost the only being he loved on earth. Only two minutes had passed from the time when Cyrus Harding disappeared to the moment when his companions set foot on the ground. They had hopes, therefore, of arriving in time to save him. "'Let us look for him! Let us look for him!' cried Neb. "'Yes, Neb,' replied Gideon Spilett, "'and we will find him, too.' "'Living, I trust?' "'Still living.' "'Can he swim?' asked Pencroft. "'Yes,' replied Neb. "'And besides, Top is there.' The sailor, observing the heavy surf on the shore, shook his head. The engineer had disappointed disappeared to the north of the shore, and nearly half a mile from the place where the castaways had landed. The nearest point of the beach he could reach was thus fully that distance off. It was then nearly six o'clock. A thick fog made the night very dark. The castaways proceeded towards the north of the land, on which chance had thrown them, an unknown region, the geographical situation of which they could not even guess. They were walking upon a sandy soil, mingled with stones, which appeared destitute of any sort of vegetation. The ground, very unequal and rough, was in some places perfectly riddled with holes, making walking extremely painful. From these holes escaped every minute great birds of clumsy flight, which flew in all directions, others more active rose in flocks, and passed in clouds over their heads. The sailor thought he recognized girls and cormorants, whose shrill cries rose above the roaring of the sea. From time to time the castaways stopped and shouted, and listened for some response from the ocean, for they thought that if the engineer had landed, and they had been near to the place, they would have heard the barking of the dog top even should Harding himself have been unable to give any sign of existence. They stopped to listen, but no sound arose above the roaring of the waves and the dashing of the surf. The little hollow bandmen continued their march forward, searching into every hollow of the shore. After walking for twenty minutes, the four castaways were suddenly brought to a standstill where the sight of foaming billows close to their feet. The solid ground ended here. They found themselves at the extremity of a sharp point on which the sea broke furiously. It is a promontory, 
said the sailor. We must retrace our steps, holding towards the right, and we shall thus gain the mainland. But if he is there, said Neb, pointing to the ocean, whose waves shone of a snowy white in the darkness, well, let us call again. And all uniting their voices, they gave a vigorous shout, but there came no reply. They waited for a lull, then began again. Still no reply. The castaways accordingly returned, following the opposite side of the promontory, over a soil equally sandy and rugged. However, Pencroft observed that the shore was more equal, that the ground rose, and he declared that it was joined by a long slope to a hill, whose massive front he thought that he could see looming indistinctly through the mist. The birds were less numerous on this part of the shore. The sea was also less tumultuous, and they observed that the agitation of the waves was diminished. The noise of the surf was scarcely heard. This side of the promontory evidently formed a semicircular bay, which the sharp point sheltered from the breakers of the open sea. But to follow this direction was to go south, exactly opposite to that part of the coast where Harding might have landed. After a walk of a mile and a half, the shore presented no curve which would permit them to return to the north. This promontory, of which they had turned the point, must be attached to the mainland. The castaways, although their strength was nearly exhausted, still marched courageously forward, hoping every moment to meet with a sudden angle which would set them in the right in the first direction. What was their disappointment when, after trudging nearly two miles, having reached an elevated point composed of slippery rocks, they found themselves again stopped by the sea? "'We are on an islet,' said Pencroft. "'We have surveyed it from one extremity to the other.' The sailor was right. They had been thrown not on a continent, not even on an island, but on an islet which was not more than two miles in length, with even less breadth. Was this barren spot the desolate refuge of seabirds, strewn with stones and destitute of vegetation, attached to a more important archipelago? It was impossible to say. When the voyagers from their car saw the land through the mist, they had not been able to reconnoiter it sufficiently. However, Pencroft, accustomed with his sailor eyes to pierce through the gloom, was almost certain that he could clearly distinguish in the west confused masses which indicated an elevated coast. But they could not in the dark determine whether it was a single island or connected with others. They could not leave it either, as the sea surrounded them. They was therefore put off to the next day their search for the engineer, from whom, alas, not a single cry had reached them to show that he was still in existence. The silence of our friend proves nothing, said the reporter. Perhaps he has fainted or is wounded and unable to reply directly, so we will not despair. The reporter then proposed to light a fire on the point of the islet, which would serve as a signal to the engineer. But they searched in vain for wood or dry brambles, Nothing but sand and stones were to be found. 
the grief of Neb and his companions, who were all strongly attached to the intrepid Harding, can be better pictured than described. It was too evident that they were powerless to help him. They must wait with what patience they could for daylight. Either the engineer had been able to save himself, and had already found a refuge on some point of the coast, or he was lost forever. The long and painful hours passed by. Cold was intense. The castaways suffered cruelly, but they scarcely perceived it. They did not even think of taking a minute's rest, forgetting everything but their chief, hoping or wishing to hope on. They continued to walk up and down on this stale spot, always returning to its northern point, where they could approach nearest to the scene of the catastrophe. They listened, they called, and then uniting their voices, they endeavoured to raise even a louder shout than before, which would be transmitted to a great distance. The wind had now fallen almost to a calm, and the noise of the sea began also to subside. One of Neb's shouts even appeared to produce an echo. Herbert directed Pencroft's attention to it, adding, "'That proves that there is a coast to the west at no great distance.' The sailor nodded. Besides, his eyes could not deceive him. If he had discovered land, however indistinct it might appear, land was sure to be there. But that distant echo was the only response produced by Neb's shouts, while a heavy gloom hung over all the part east of the island. Meanwhile, the sky was clearing little by little. Towards midnight, the stars shone out, and if the engineer had been there with his companions, he would have remarked that these stars did not belong to the northern hemisphere. The polar star was not visible. The constellations were not those which they had been accustomed to see in the United States. The southern cross glittered brightly in the sky. The night passed away. Towards five o'clock in the morning of the 25th of March, the sky began to lighten. The horizon still remained dark, but with daybreak a thick mist rose from the sea, so that the eye could scarcely penetrate beyond twenty feet or so from where they stood. At length, the fog gradually unrolled itself in great, heavily moving waves. It was unfortunate, however, that castaways could distinguish nothing around them. While the gaze of the reporter and Ned were cast upon the ocean, the sailor and Herbert looked eagerly for the coast in the west, but not a speck of land was visible. Never mind, said Pencroft. Though I do not see the land, I feel it. It is there, there, as sure as the fact that we are no longer at Richmond. But the fog was not long in rising. It was only a fine weather mist. A hot sun soon penetrated to the surface of the island. About half past six, three quarters of an hour after sunrise, the mist became more transparent. It grew thicker above and cleared away below. Soon the isle appeared as if it had descended from a cloud. Then the sea showed itself around them, spreading far away towards the east, bounded on the west by an abrupt and precipitous coast. Yes, the land was there. Their safety was at least provisionally ensured. 
the island and the coast was separated by a channel about half a mile in breadth, through which rushed an extremely rapid current. However, one of the castaways, following the impulse of his heart, immediately threw himself into the current, without consulting his companions, without saying a single word. It was Neb. He was in haste to be on the other side and to climb toward the north. It had been impossible to hold him back. Pencroft called him in vain. The reporter prepared to follow him, but Pencroft stopped him. Do you want to cross the channel? he asked. Yes, replied Spirit. All right, said the seaman. Wait a bit. Neb is well able to carry out to his master. If we venture into the channel, we risk being carried into the open sea by the current, which is running very strong. If I'm not wrong, it is ebbing. See, the tide is going down over the sand. Let us have patience, and at low water it is possible we may find a horrible passage. You're right, replied the reporter. We will not separate more than we can help. During this time, Ned was struggling vigorously against the current. He was crossing in a big direction. Its black shoulders could be seen emerging at each stroke. He was carried down very quickly, but he also made way towards the shore. It took more than half an hour to cross from the islet to the land, and he reached the shore several hundred feet from the place which was opposite to the point from which he had started. Landing at the foot of a high wall of granite, he shook himself vigorously, and then, setting off running, soon disappeared behind a rocky point, which projected to nearly the height of the northern extremity of the islet. Neb's companions had watched his daring attempt with painful anxiety, and when he was out of sight, they fixed their attention on the land where their hope of safety lay, while eating some shellfish with which the sand was strewn. It was a wretched repast, but still it was better than nothing. The opposite coast formed one vast bay, terminating on the south by a very sharp point, which was destitute of all vegetation, and was of a very wild aspect. This point abutted on the shore in a grotesque outline of huge granite rocks. Towards the north, on the contrary, the bay widened, and a more rounded coast appeared, trending from the southwest to the northeast, and terminating in a slender cape. The distance between these two extremities, which made the bow of the bay, was about eight miles. Half a mile from the shore rose the islet, which somewhat resembled the carcass of a gigantic whale. Its extreme breadth was not more than a quarter of a mile. Opposite the islet, the beach consisted first of sand, covered with black stones, which were now appearing little by little above the retreating tide. The second level was separated by a perpendicular granite cliff, terminated at the top by an unequal edge at a height of at least three hundred feet. It continued thus for a length of three miles, ending suddenly on the right with a precipice, which looked as if cut by the hand of man. On the left, above the promontory, this irregular and jagged cliff descended by a long slope of conglomerate rocks, till it mingled with the ground of the southern point. 
On the upper plateau of the coast not a tree appeared. It was a flat tableland, like that above Cape Town, at the Cape of Good Hope, but of reduced proportions, at least so it appeared seen from the islet. However, verdure was not wanting to the right beyond the precipice. They could easily distinguish a confused mass of great trees, which extended beyond the limits of their view. This verdure relieved to the eye, so long wearied by the continued range of granite. Lastly, beyond and above the plateau, in a northwesterly direction, and at a distance of at least seven miles, glittered a white summit which reflected the sun's rays. It was that of a lofty mountain capped with snow. The question could not at present be decided whether this land formed an island or whether it belonged to a continent. But on beholding the convulsed masses heaped up on the left, no geologist would have hesitated to give them a volcanic origin, for they were unquestionably the work of subterranean convulsions. Gideon Spilett, Pencroft, and Herbert attentively examined this land on which they might perhaps have to live many long years, on which indeed they might even die, should it be out of the usual track of vessels, as was too likely to be the case. Well, asked Herbert, what do you say, Pencroft? There is some good and some bad as in everything, replied the sailor. We shall see. But now the ebb is evidently making... In three hours we shall attempt the passage, and once on the other side we'll try to get out of this scrape, and I hope may find the captain. Bancroft was not long in his anticipations. Three hours later at low tide, the greater part of the sand forming the bed of the channel was uncovered. Between the islands and the coast there only remained a narrow channel which would no doubt be easy to cross. About ten o'clock, Gideon Spilett and his companions stripped themselves of their clothes, which they placed in bundles on their heads, and then ventured into the water, which was not more than five feet deep. Herbert, for whom it was too deep, swam like a fish, and got through capitally. All three arrived without difficulty on the opposite shore. Quickly drying themselves in the sun, they put on their clothes, which they had preserved from contact with the water, and sat down to take counsel together what to do next. End of chapter 3